found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true Hello friends, welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm the host of this study, Donnie King. This is Monday, August the 29th, episode number 79, What Kind of Prayers Do You Pray? James chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, we had another installment of Systematic Theology, and Brother Donnie and Brother Chris Lee finished their two-part study of the church. They taught us the purpose of the church, and in doing so, they went over several well-known and established facets of this topic, and then they dove off into deeper waters. We need to see that there is much more to the church than a building, a few people, and a sign out front. The purpose of the church should be known by all believers— In today's episode, we learned that we are not to swear, but we should let our yea be yea, and our nay should mean nay. James then tells the afflicted, those mourning, and those who are sick what they need to do. He also tells them how to do these things. He specifies the need of prayer of faith, the elders within the church, and the anointing of oil. He tells us that the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much, for it saves the sick. We cover a lot of ground in this study. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of the podcast, Brother Donnie King. Thank you for joining us today. This is going to be an interesting study, as always, so we might as well go ahead and get started. All right. We're going to begin by looking at verse 12 of chapter 5 of the book of James. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any oath. But let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation. James is signaling a change of thought as he starts this verse with, but, but above all things. He is telling them to take what he said up to this point, and then listen to what he's about to say, because he's going to contrast some ideas here. He says, above all things, which is a Greek word, panton. Panton means everything, above everything else. He's speaking of the full quantity as in Acts 16 and 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. When it says all the doors were open, that means a great quantity means every one of them. James is telling us what I'm about to say here is of the utmost importance. But what is this that's so imperative that he's trying to tell us? Well, he wastes no time getting to it, for he says, Above all things, my brethren, swear not. Swear not? Really, that's the most important thing to James? As he says, swear not, this is the Greek word omnio. Omnio means to take an oath, and it's directly connected to the teachings of Christ from Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 37, where Jesus said, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 
Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. You can see exactly what James was saying here is repurposing what Jesus said and just wording it slightly different. He says, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by oath. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest you fall into condemnation, where Jesus says it's coming of evil. You're coming under condemnation because it's coming from evil. For those people who are against this book being in the canon of Scripture because James hardly ever refers to Jesus, what do they do with this? How do you reconcile this when they say, well, James never really directly quoted from Jesus? What is this? This is a direct quote of Matthew 5, 34 through 37. There's no denying the source of which James is using here. He tells us not to swear by the heaven, the earth, or with any other oath. The word for oath here is different than the word for swear, even though they are very similar in meaning. James uses the Greek word horkos instead of omnio right here. When he's changing the words up, speaking from swear and then oath, he uses two completely different words, but they both mean very similar things. He commands us to mean yes when we say yes. He commands us to mean no when we say no. In other words, don't be wishy-washy. Only say what you mean, but you need to mean what you say. You don't have to swear in order to be truthful. There are some people who they have to affirm it in a different manner. They have to say, well, I'm being honest this time. I promise to tell you the truth right now. Then what have you been telling up to this point? Have you been lying to us the whole time? Have you been twisting it? Have you been changing it? Have you been adding to it? Have you been taking from it? If it's not been nothing but the unvarnished truth, then thank you for being honest with us now. But James says, be honest all the time. Yea is understood as an affirmation of the truth. Nay is understood as a denial of reality. The key word in this verse, I believe, is the very last one, and it's condemnation. This is the Greek word krisis. Krisis means to have judgment passed on you, like John 7 and 27 mentions it. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. There is a form of judgment being passed on you. Matthew 23 and 33 uses it in an interesting way. He says, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Here, damnation is crisis. This is a word that speaks of a legal decision declaring someone guilty in a criminal case, but it also implies a punishment that is understood. This can work as a legal term, but it's also understood in the spiritual sense as well. I'm sure we all know that the penalty for sin after we face the judgment of God is hell. Interestingly enough, there's a few Greek translations that interpret this word not as krisis alone, but as hypocrisis. Hypocrisis is where we get our English word hypocrite. It means to fall into pretense or to fall into a life that lacks true sincerity. Now, this may not be 100% accurate, but it certainly flows with the main context James has been expounding upon. So if you want to look at it this way, he says you're going to receive the greater condemnation. In other words, if you're playing the hypocrite, you certainly will face condemnation. Now, James shifts gears as we go into verse 13, and he asks a question. As a matter of fact, he asks a couple of them in verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. James asked if there's anyone among those of the diaspora that's been afflicted, which most likely there were. 
Afflicted is the Greek word kakapathio. Kakapathio means to suffer misfortune, distress, hardness, like 2 Timothy 2 and 3 says. And that same word is used again, but translated differently in 2 Timothy 2 and 9. Let me show you verse 3 and verse 9. Verse 3, it says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's hardness in 2 Timothy 2 and 3, but it's trouble in 2 Timothy 2 and 9, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. It is the same word, kakopathio, that is translated as hardness and trouble. It means to suffer misfortune and distress, to go through something. It speaks of someone who has experienced harm or emotional pain. James tells this kind of person to pray. It seems to be one of the only times James specifically mentions prayer, but that's false. James starts off this book by telling us to ask God for wisdom. He also rebuked them for not asking God. He then rebuked some of them for asking God, but said they're asking for the wrong reasons. All of these things are only different ways to speak of prayer. James is still yet talking about prayer. Some people believe that James spends too much time emphasizing the word or scriptures and hardly ever focuses on prayer, but this proves that idea wrong. He asked, is there anyone among the diaspora who is Mary? And I believe there were because these people were believers in Jesus Christ. That means that these people had repented of their sins and that God had forgiven their sins. This alone should make every believer Mary. Yes, that includes even people who have been persecuted for for their belief in Christ. Mary is the Greek word euthymio. Euthymio interprets as to be cheerful as in Acts 27, verse 22 and 25. It means to be encouraged and it means to be put in good spirits. This is when Paul was talking to them in the ship and he said, I exhort you to be of good cheer. It's cheerful here. It's Mary. It's to be of good cheer. And he says, be of good cheer. I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. To this person who feels encouraged or in good spirits, he tells them to sing. Those who have been put into good spirits should sing songs of praise unto God. The phrase sing psalms that we see here is one Greek word, and it's salo. Salo is a most intriguing word, for it means to sing praise to God by song, but it also means to play music. The origin of this word comes from pluck, as in plucking a string in order to play music. This word also describes the music that is played as a praise song unto God. The idea we should get from this is that we should sing praise to God along with or accompanied by music. Now, we know that James is not a dummy. He knows that even among true believers, there will be some who are afflicted. There'll be some who are sad. But he knows that there will also be those who are cheerful and singing praises to God, even in the midst of hardships. Remember Paul and Silas? (laughs) It's hard to forget that when you're thinking of people who's in a bad state of condition, but still have their joy intact. Verse 14, James asks yet another question. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Once again, we have another rhetorical question from James. This time he asks if there's any sick among you. Now, There's always sick people among the people of God, so we know that James isn't shooting from the hip here. He uses the Greek word astheneo. Astheneo means sick or ill. It's translated often as weak, such as in Romans 4 and 19. And being not weak in the faith, he said, this is the astheneo 
not to be weak, not to be sickly. He tells those who are sick, those who are weak, to do something. He said they're to exercise their faith and their works by calling for the elders of the church to pray for them. I believe this showcases a person's faith in God and their faith in the prayers of the people of God. This also pulls their works into the picture once again because there's something that they must do. When he says to call for the elders, call is the Greek word proskalio. Proskalio means to summons, to send for, or to call someone to yourself. They're not to call the church gossip. They're not to call the janitor. They're not to call the choir director, but they are to call for the elders of the church. Now, the word elders can refer to aged men, or it can refer to any man who has entered into the ministry, for the Greek presbyteros is used here. They're not to call for the elders of the market. They're not to call for the elders of the town council. They're not to call for the elders from the bingo tournament downtown, otherwise known as the Methodist Church today. They're not to call for any of those. They're to call for the elders of the church, not the elders of the bingo club, not the elders of the Elks Club, but the elders of the church. The elders of the church, the Greek word for church is ecclesia. It interprets as assembly or the assembly. I feel that Ecclesia is probably one of the most interesting words. If you ever want to do a deep dive into a word study, do it on Ecclesia. You won't regret it. It comes from the word kaleo, which means to call, as we just saw in the previous word that we were studying, proskaleo. Call them to yourself, summons them to you. So if Ecclesia comes from the word kaleo, it must mean call as well. And when you take it literally, ecclesia should be understood as those who are called or those who are called out. We are called to come out from among the world and be a separate people. I believe that this is a play on words by James again, for he's telling those who are weak and sickly to call those whom God has called. (laughs) That's powerful when you think about it. These people who were called by God are now called to anoint the sick one with oil, which reminds me of two places where Jesus spoke of similar things in the book of Mark, Mark 16 and 18. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So here we have Jesus telling people to pray one for another. But in Mark 6 and 13, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Here we see the process of the anointing with oil mixed with healing. There's nothing hidden in translation from the Greek word about anointing with oil, but the word oil itself is specified in the Greek, though, as olive oil. It isn't canola oil. It isn't peanut oil. It isn't any other kind of oil, but olive oil. And when it says to anoint them, it simply means to smear oil upon someone or to pour oil upon someone. Now, there are wonderful reasons for the oil to be olive oil. One, this is the kind of oil they used in the priesthood. Number two, the olive leaf is the symbol of Israel. But even more, it's the symbol of peace. So in other words, this is going to bring peace to the sick person if it's done as God has laid forth for them. Every one of us should see the work of the high priest here in this passage. The person would have gone to the priest back in those days when they were under the priesthood, and then the priest would have anointed him with oil and prayed over him. Now the believer calls for the men who are called by God, which is a reference to a group who are set apart like the priests were. These men were to anoint the sick with oil, just like the priests would. These godly men would also pray over him, 
just like the priest would. And in this, the elders are now replacing the priesthood that had stood for hundreds of years. They were to pray over the sick. They were to anoint them with oil. And all of these things were to be done in the name of the Lord. Did you notice that this wasn't to be done in the name of one of those elders? Did you take notice that this was not to be done in the name of the church that's represented here? This must be done in the name of the Lord or there will be no healing. Going into verse 15, James says, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. There's an iffiness here, and there's a couple of shalls that is definite. James continues the thought that he started in verse 14 into verse 15 once again, and it's hard to miss the priestly actions going on in this verse as well. The forgiving of sins took place as these men were doing the work of God, just like it happened with the priesthood. As I go over some of these word meanings, I want you to keep the priestly actions in the back of your minds and just think about how many of these things are portrayed through the priesthood. James speaks of the prayer of faith, and that's the Greek word eukapistas. Now, that holds great meaning here. Prayer is euka. Euka can be interpreted as prayer, a reverent petition, and a vow, as in Acts 18 and 18, where it talked about that Paul shaved his head for he had a vow, the last few words of the verse. Now, this carries the sense of an earnest prayer, one in which a person is ready to make commitments or vows over. Faith is the usual Greek word which describes saving faith and true belief in God. This prayer of faith arises from the heart of a person willing to change their ways. This person is willing to place all faith in Christ, and they're also willing to make some promises to show the veracity of their faith that it is real. This is only on the part of the sick person, because there's some dispute concerning if this person is even included in this discussion. And this brings us to our question. Can my faith save your soul from hell? I don't really believe that's possible, but there's some people who do believe that. And they use verses like is found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, where the centurion believed that Jesus could heal his servant over time and over space, and he said he had never seen such faith. And we realize that in no less than six different places, Jesus told people who were delivered that it was their own faith, though, that made them whole. It was the faith of the centurion that helped this other man. And we realize that there's times that our faith can help others. It must be your faith that truly believes unto salvation. I can have faith for you and believe that you be healed, but I cannot have saving faith for you and allow you to be saved. If so, then I would be your savior. So it doesn't work like that. All right. Now, Jesus told people who were delivered, it was their faith that made them whole. We see this in Matthew 9 and 22, Matthew 15 and 28. Mark 5 and 34, Mark 10 and 52, Luke 8 and 48, and Luke 17 and 19. Going back to something we were looking at just a little bit ago concerning the swearing, the use of swearing, I believe when you study what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, and you look at what James says here in chapter 5, most people swear in order to make their statements more weighty or more believable. If you would just tell the truth all the time, you wouldn't have to swear to prove the verity of your words. To swear, to make an oath, to bind oneself with a vow, they're all tied together and they're all connected. Now, I'm not a big fan of making vows nor of swearing. I also affirm to tell the truth because I try to live a life of truth and honesty. I personally don't swear in a courtroom setting, but neither do I swear when I get mad either. 
So we realize that James is blending some of these things together. We're looking at all of these things. And instead of the mouth being one that swears to try to make people believe they're telling the truth, this is the mouth that should call for the elders of the church. This is the mouth that should confess the faith that they have. Do you see all of these things coming together and converging right here? We're seeing that all of this has come together. And now not only is the man at play that's sick, but the people that have come to pray for him also factors into this. Listen to this. Now we must address the fact of these elders that are praying this prayer of faith for the sick man. We know that this is also to be understood here, but I believe that both parties are in agreement as to getting this sick man help. The sick man wants help. The people have come to try to get him help. These elders who have been called by God have now been called to the bed of a person in need. They come in, they begin to pray with faith, and they pray that this man should be raised up. The Bible first says that this prayer will save the sick. The prayer of faith saving the sick reminds me of three different portions of Scripture, and I want to read them to you, starting with Acts 28 and verse 8. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. Isaiah 33 and 24, And the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Here we have people that are sick and their sins being forgiven mentioned in the same verse. Hmm, that sounds a little familiar. And Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, And behold, they brought him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. <laughs> Another very interesting passage, but he only did this to prove a point. Not so much that these people had the faith to save this man, but he did this to show that it's more important for a man's body to be healed. No, that it's more important for a man's soul to be saved than his body to be healed. All right, now the word for save the sick, where he says save the sick, this is your usual Greek word sazo, which is used for salvational speech. So it's not a different word that James is using here. So now the question must be asked, does save carry a different meaning in this portion of Scripture? Sazo not only means to save, but it means to deliver, and it means to heal, and it means to make whole, as found in Matthew 9, verse 21 and 22. The woman says, with the issue of blood, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole, I shall be sazo, I shall be saved, I shall be delivered, I shall be healed. And Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you complete. And the woman was made whole from that very hour. So now this could be understood more of a healing of making the body whole, but it's also the same word that is used for actual salvation experiences in Christ. The focus is on saving of the sick, which is the Greek word kamno. Sick is the Greek word kamno. Kamno is interpreted as to be exhausted, to be fatigued, to be weary, as in Hebrews 12 and 3, to be faint, as in Revelation 2 and 3. It also means to be ill, and it gives the sense of being discouraged. Now, think about what all this implies. You can be delivered from exhaustion. You can be delivered from fatigue and weariness. You can be healed from your illness. You can be made whole from your sickness. You can be saved from your discouragement. James says that the Lord shall raise them up, and the word raise is egaro. Egaro means to heal, to get up, and to rise up. It carries the sense of one who's been lying down, and now he's been made to stand up. This brings Mark 3 and 3 to my mind when I think about this, along with the man stricken with palsy in the bed. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. 
The phrase, if you've committed, if he have committed, is the Greek word amy, which means to be or have been. This gives the idea that if this man has been committing sins, which speaks of a man being unfaithful to God. This man has been unfaithful to God, but he also needs God to move for him. So James states in the affirmative case, they shall be forgiven him. Forgiven is the Greek word aphiemi. Aphiemi means to leave, Matthew 5 and 24. It means to pardon. It means to be omitted, as Matthew 23 and 23 says. And it also means to depart. So this forgiveness is the same forgiveness that a sinner needs. It's also the same thing that a sick person needs. Going into verse 16, we'll just touch on a couple of things here quickly, and we'll finish this in our next study. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. As soon as James tells us that if a man has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him, he then commands us to confess our faults one to another. The word we see as confess is the Greek exomologio. Exomologio means to agree, to praise, or to think, as in Matthew 11 and 25, and it also can mean to promise, as in Luke 22 and 6. It carries the sense of admitting to a punishable deed. This directly leads us to our next word, false, which is the Greek word paramptome. Paramptome is translated as sin in Ephesians 1 and 7, trespass in Matthew 18 and 35, and offense in Romans 4 and 25. This describes the act of overstepping a moral boundary. It speaks of something everyone would agree on is a sin. Once we admit the fact that we have faults, we are to confess those faults one to another. We're also to pray for each other that we all might be healed. This reminds me of Hebrews 12 and 13, which shows us the heart of God so beautifully. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. That's the mind and heart of God. God doesn't want us turned out of the way. He doesn't want us stumbling into sin, and he doesn't want us to be hurt, and he doesn't want us to quit. The Greek word here for healed is iaome. Iaome is defined as to be cured, to be made whole, as in Matthew 15 and 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it even unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. That's iaome. This tells us that there's a kind of healing in admitting your faults and by confessing them openly to others. If you don't mind me making an inference here, but I see the work of the priesthood of the believers in this verse again. You were only to make confession to God concerning your sins, but now James is saying confess your sins one to another. The main way this was achieved was by going to the priest and making confession unto him for hundreds of years. James is placing the priesthood back on the believers as it was originally intended by God in the time of Melchizedek. We'll look at the remainder of this verse in the next study. Great teaching. I appreciate the teaching today. Got a question here for you. All right. I'm ready for it. Okay. Doesn't Scripture teach us that we are to be thankful and to rejoice every day because this is the day that the Lord has made? Good question. And it's quoted that way all over the place. And I'm not going to disagree with the thought behind it. Yes, we should be thankful unto God. The Bible said in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 
But the very scripture that has been referenced, I'm going to say that it's got a little different meaning to it than what appears on face value. Psalm 118 verse 24 is quoted often. It's sung often. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And we look at that and assume that, well, that means today is Saturday. Today is Monday. And we're going to rejoice and be glad because God made this day. Well, technically that is true. But that's not what the context of Psalm 118 is speaking of altogether. I'm not saying that it's wrong to use this verse in that manner, but it is using it in a different context than which it was originally written. Let's go back to Psalm 118 and look at the two preceding verses before that, 22 and 23, and they're going to set the context for us. And then we're going to look at this and what it's saying, and then we're going to try to understand what has just been told to us. Most people assume that we're to look at every day in this manner, and we really should, but we're missing something very important until we go back and look at this psalm deeper. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, it looks like an odd assortment of verses thrown together, and we just move on, and we say, well, it's talking about the stone that the builders rejected, and then it's talking about something God did, and it's marvelous in our eyes, and then it says, this is the day that the Lord hath made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it, and so we get excited thinking, okay, don't really understand the first two verses a whole lot, but hey, verse 24, we know what that means. Today is such and such, and we're going to rejoice in it. That's great that you can do that and have that attitude. We need to rejoice. But here's what's being said here. There's going to be a stone which God gives the people, the people of Israel. They're going to refuse this stone. That stone that is refused, it will become the headstone of the corner. In other words, the chief cornerstone. A chief cornerstone is what the whole foundation is built off of and from. Years ago, when they would put in a foundation, they didn't have a concrete truck coming out every few minutes, pouring a concrete slab and making it level and have it all leveled out. They would have to find a huge rock that they would use as the chief cornerstone that they would put and they would get it set and they would construct the rest of the building from off of that one thing. Okay, so if a person and we realize this is talking about a person here, if it's talking about a person The chief cornerstone is who all these other things are going to be based on and built off of. We're told, though, that he's going to come as a stone, but he's going to be rejected, and then he will become the chief cornerstone. That means everything's going to hinge from him. Well, we realize today that Jesus is that chief cornerstone. Amen. Okay, so he is the stone which the builders rejected. He came unto them. They rejected him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as to many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That's what John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1. So we know that the stone was refused. It was rejected. But then that same stone that Israel pushed to the side is the very stone God used to base everything off of. The writer goes on and says, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, it's a wonderful thing that God has done. Why? And then he goes on and says, this is the day which the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Well, what is the day that the Lord has made? The day that the stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. That was the day that Jesus died on the cross, fulfilling everything he was sent to be. He asked Peter, standing there that day, outside of Caesarea Philippi, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
he asked all the disciples that question. And several of them speak up and say, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers and he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells him, thou art Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Been a lot of debate through the years who or what the rock is. Is the rock Peter? Is the rock the church? Is the rock Christ? Is the rock the confession of Peter? There's four different views on that. But yet we realize that he is the stone that the builders rejected. And he said, upon this rock, this stone, I'm going to build my church. And so he is the chief cornerstone the whole church is built from. And now the rest of the building fitly framed together, as Paul told the Ephesians, is built up on the foundation of the apostles. So the rest of the foundation is the teaching of the apostles. The chief cornerstone, all of the teaching of the apostles is based off of Jesus Christ. The rest of the foundation is the teachings of the apostles about Jesus Christ. And the rest of the building is the church that gets saved and believes in him. When that church was started is the day that the Lord has made. That's why we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. The church of Jesus Christ has been built. That chief cornerstone, everything has now flowed from him and all glory returns back to him. We're told to rejoice over that day. The day that Jesus is seen as the chief cornerstone is the Lord's doing. And when he's seen as the chief cornerstone, this is the doing of the Lord. That's a marvelous thing, and it ought to be marvelous in our eyes, and therefore we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Glory to God. Brother Donnie, that was a good answer. Thank God for Jesus. Everything, again, leads right back to the Son of God. Yes, it does. Jesus Christ. All right, remember, friends, if you got a Bible question you'd like an answer to, send us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We'll do our best to get you an answer. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until the next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and listen to us on Friday for special edition number 45, Our Altars Necessary Today. Feeling free, I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid to go. I'm dressing and talking like you want me to, he's a keeper of my soul I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern I'm looking for a home and glory where no sorrow will ever